Good morning. Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see everybody. Do we have good Thanksgiving? Are we still thankful? Still eating turkey? Anybody? Anybody not do turkey? The brave ones. Thank you for your honesty, Miss Anita, in church today. Great to see everybody. As you can see, we're ready for Christmas here. We started our, our Advent uh, a week early on the uh, kind of traditional church calendar. It starts next week, but since Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, we went ahead and kicked it off this week because just to plan for Christmas Eve. We won't have a, a Sunday morning service on Christmas Eve since it's on a Sunday. We'll just have our candlelight service at 5.30 that evening. So we kind of kicked it off a little early and at Fellowship, sometimes we just kind of do what we want to do. So we, so we started a little early. Uh, I know that for thousands of years, historically, the church has been doing it a certain way, but we just thought we'd do it a little different. Uh, I'm ready for Christmas. I've been ready for Christmas since uh, Halloween. Um, I know everybody gets upset about, like, you got to have one or the other, and I'm like, that is so, like, no, you can have it all. You know, we can have Thanksgiving and a Christmas tree. Come on, there's enough for everybody to go around, get rid of the scarcity mindset. I love Christmas, I love everything about it, and, and I love the Advent season. Uh, Advent, the word Advent just means appearing, and so what, what Advent season, uh, like I said, traditionally it kicks off the church calendar uh, that, that many people follow around the world because what it does, it, it kind of starts the year off um, as in the rhythms of, of the church life, of, of worship and celebrating who Jesus is and what he's done. Advent just means appearing. And so we, we, we uh, observe Advent, and it's a time where as the people of God, uh, we, we make room in our hearts, we prepare our hearts for the appearing of Jesus that we know that happened 2,000 years ago, uh, but even in our own lives. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us just to become more aware of how Jesus is working in our lives, what he may be up to in those things. And so today, uh, the, the first kind of traditional you know, uh, theme of the first Sunday of Advent is hope. That's why we read from Isaiah this morning, the hope of uh, the people of God, when things seem the darkest, when God seems the farthest away, when things may seem hopeless, God provides hope. And so over these next few Sundays leading up to our Christmas Eve service, uh, we're going to be going through some different psalms uh, to, to kind of go through Advent. So we won't be doing on Sunday mornings the traditional Christmas stories. Uh, we're going to be looking at psalms because psalms, um, for thousands of years, uh, even before Jesus came, uh, psalms were the, the prayer book or the hymnal of the people of God. And, um, and, and there are kind of different types and, and roles that psalms would play in the life of God's people. There, were, uh, or there are psalms of lament. 
Uh, they're psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving. They're imprecatory psalms. And then there are what's called royal or kingly or messianic psalms, where the, where the people of God are, are crying out and praying, waiting for God to send his chosen one who's going to redeem them. Israel was waiting for the day uh, when the Messiah would come to set Israel free. Uh, and we know now, in hindsight, that that Messiah, God's chosen one, was Jesus who came to pay the penalty for sin and rose from the grave, conquering the ultimate enemies of humans. And uh, so, so we're going to be looking at the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 2 today. So if you want to find Psalm 2, uh, we're looking at it because the Psalm today, I think, uh, is going to offer some, some wisdom, uh, some, some, uh, some maybe shocking phrases, and it's going to prepare us, I hope, that we can see uh, hope in it and, and how God is working for us. So let me read Psalm chapter 2, and then I'll pray for us. Why do the nations conspire? Your, your, your translation or version may say rage. And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. Or it says, maybe your translation says something like, rule them with a scepter of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us, Jesus. Open our minds to... To receive the word that you've given us, open our ears to hear you speak to us, open our hearts to love you more than when we came in this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. What's the most unrealistic thing you've heard lately? Somebody still have hope in the panther seasons? Easy, Easy I know, I know. Anybody love to make plans about a family vacation that you know will actually never happen? especially this time of year when it gets cold. Anybody thinking about the beach yet? Anybody ever tell you, like, when you were a kid, they were going to play a pro sport, and you've seen their genetic pool? <laughs> Guilty. Anybody ever talk about uh, sitting around a dinner table with family members, maybe even this past Thursday, and you hear a family member talking about political ideals, and you're like, those are the most unrealistic things I've ever heard of. There are two types of people in this world. I've said this before, and I don't want to be contentious, especially after Fred's sermon last week, but there are two types of people in the world. There are optimists, and there are pessimists. And you know who the pessimists are because they call themselves realists. There's no such thing as a realist. No one knows how the things are going to go, okay? All pessimists call themselves realists. I myself am an optimist and an idealistic by nature, so I say unreal, unrealistic things all the time. And Anna, being a pessimist, well, she calls herself a realist, my wife, has had to learn just to let me get it out of my system, let me say it out loud, and then it'll die. 
But re- unrealistic things are, are we, we hear them all the time, we maybe say them all the time, from plans we make to expectations we have for other people to live their lives. We often find ourselves surrounded by unrealistic things. The beautiful thing about Christmas is that it is one of two of the most realistic holidays we celebrate. Here's what I mean by that. It's a holiday rooted in truth, in reality, in earthiness. It's down to earth and it's grounded. Now that may seem odd to hear because when we think Christmas, we think of things like the Grinch. We think of things like Santa. We think of things like Cousin Eddie, who actually may be a little too realistic to some of our family members. Right? The amount of money that we spend is unrealistic. We can't do it all the time. The, the time that we take away from our jobs and our families and our homes to travel and do things and be out and about, the busyness of Christmas is not realistic. Right? The amount, hopefully, the diet of Christmas is not the way we eat year-round. Like we just can't live like that. The amount of going and doing and, and buying and spending, it's not realistic, but Christmas itself is realistic. Christmas is, is very realistic. And, and here's what I mean by that. As we look at this psalm and we begin this Advent series and we prepare our hearts to receive what Jesus has for us as his people, here's what I mean by it's realistic. And, and here's why I believe that this psalm, especially today, is going to bring us hope. Because if you're sitting here today and the way that commercialism and the extras of Christmas bum you out because you think you get upset, you're like, it's so distracting from the true meaning of Christmas, then you feel that that reality, the realistic nature of it. If you find yourself in a tough family or home or relational situation and you start to feel anxiety around the holiday and the celebration, then you feel that realistic nature of Christmas. If you're dreading waking up to a quiet home on Christmas morning that used to have the sound of little feet running down the hall, you feel it. If you feel the reality of wanting the fullness of life that Jesus offers in the midst of a broken world and lived experience, then you get it. Christmas is very realistic because there is nothing more real than God with us. There's nothing more real than God give us. See, we as humans were made to live in God's presence. Humans, all of us, we were made to dwell with, commune with, hear from, talk to, walk with the living God. But even just think about the scene of when Jesus was born. Because we all know the truth of the life that, that we experience Right, Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, God himself wrapped in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into the world. He appeared to his people while his family is on the run from a worldly, broken, evil empire occupying their family's traditional, God-ordained, God-given homeland because their king was trying to snuff out any competition with power and ordered all children, all boys under the age of two to be murdered. And we get upset when Starbucks took the word Christmas off of our cups. See, we read the story of Herod killing those baby boys in, uh, that all under the age of two, 
And we can relate if we set the scene for Christmas. We can relate to the words of Psalm 2. And we can relate to ourselves feeling the brokenness of Christmas. That, that it, while it feels so unrealistic, there's nothing more real than the fact that God wants you with him. So as we start Psalm 2 today, because we're looking at the Advent, Advent calendar, there, we remember that hope in the midst of darkness. Psalm 2 is for those of us who could use a little hope today. And so the psalm's broken up into four sections. If you were hoping to come to church and have an alliterated outline, my Baptist roots kicked in today and you're going to get it because verses 1 through 3 show us a raging world. Verses 4 through 6 show us a rebuttal from God. Verses 7 through 9 let us hear the words of the reigning sun. And verses 10 through 12 offer us a response. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a raging world, a rebuttal from God, the reigning sun, and a response offered. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Why do the nations conspire or rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So there's a, there's a few ways you can, when you hear that question, like, why do they do this? Why do kings do this? Why do the nations do this? Why do people try to do that? You can, you, maybe you read it rhetorically. Meaning like this could just be a question, not really looking for an answer, just wanted to get us to think about it. Like why, like maybe it could be rephrased and you've thought this recently, why does evil happen? Like why do people not care if there's a God? Like how do people make it through life without the hope of God? Do they not care that they're going to meet their maker one day? You can look at it rhetorically, you can look at it sarcastically because it emphasizes how silly it is for any created being to try and rise up and challenge God. Like we know that God created everything. Psalm 24 reminds us of that reality right out of the gate. It says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what good does it do for humans to think that they can actually rule in God's place? Or maybe it just sets you to kind of think reflectively on it. Because you hear that question, why do the nations conspire? Why do the kings of the earth rise up and the, the people band together against the Lord and his anointed? Because you know what it's like to live in a world. And maybe you personally have witnessed corruption or abuse from government and its systems that uphold it. You can look at verses 1 through 3 and you say, yep, I know that. I feel that. I get it. However it hits you as, you as you heard it read or maybe as you read it, we all can recognize the irony in it. Because we live in a world where powers rage, they conspire, they plot, and while, while nations on earth and government is not a bad thing in itself, most of it is ordained by God to keep some kind of order and structure. Most are considered to be empires and equated with evil empires that we read about in history. For a lot of people, I'm an American, I love America. For a lot of people, for the centuries that it's existed, America has been a part of the system to oppress many people. See, we do this to each other as humans, right? We, 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 we rage against each other. We rage against ourselves, against God. Wars happen, right? We, we, the people that we vote for don't get elected, and we freak out and act like the end of the world's coming. But it's 2023, and we're still rolling, right? We rage. We conspire. And we live in a society, and we feel it because we live in a society that is not at all centered around the vision of life defined by the, the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done and taught. Like we live in a culture that's driven 
by secularism. And, and I don't mean secular or secularism as in like there's holy and there's secular. What I mean is like secularism is an actual like philosophy taught that's a product of humanism and the enlightenment that essentially runs off the idea that we as humans uh, need any kind of religion. Okay, so, so I know this sounds weird. Why are we talking about this in a, on an Advent sermon? In, in 1933, there was a thing written called the Humanist Manifesto. Okay, you, you, haven't, you may not have heard of it, but you've definitely heard the effects of it because the Humanist Manifesto was taken by the nephew of a man named uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, this guy was a, his nephew was a Sigmund Freud. We all know, probably know that name brilliant psychologist who kind of changed the way we think about psychology and the workings of the brain in the early 1900s. This guy took the Humanist Manifesto and he wrote a thing. He became the father of modern day PR and marketing. Okay, so, so what he did was he, they, they took this one line from it uh, and he wrote a book called Propaganda, which was basically here's how we as like the elite and the intellectuals in the world can get people to think the way we want them to. If you, it was pretty powerful. We feel it now. If we can't see the way it's defined specifically, uh, that book, Propaganda, was also picked up by a man named Adolf Hitler in the late 30s. So, so it, was very, it, was, it was a treatise on, on how we should get rid of faith altogether. So here's the line that it says, and here's what secularism is built on. It says that man alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams that he has within himself the power for its achievement. So what secularism is, has done over the last nearly 100 years is not tried to get rid of faith because they realized it can't be done. What they've tried to do is just completely privatize it. So when we hear phrases said like, hey, you can believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Or when you hear phrases like, hey, you do you, do what makes you happy, and don't worry about anything else. Or, hey, you're, that's your truth. I'm going to speak my truth. Phrases like that that we have in common vernacular now came from a, a, a strategic, planned thing. Like thought and group of people came together, intellectuals from all over major universities in, the, in Western culture. They came together and wrote that because they said, we have outgrown the need for God in our world. And they thought if we can just get people to privatize their faith enough, they'll see that they don't need God and they'll leave God out of it completely. It's conspiring. It's the idea that we have the power to realize our potential based on our own authority and we don't answer to anyone else. So we'll do what it takes to get there. The problem is that as faith Christianity specifically, has become more and more privatized and, and people are more and more fearful to bring it into the public sphere. There have been other worldviews and, and, in a way, religions that have replaced that. Like, could you imagine telling people who hold other worldviews and, and ways that they define truth and values to keep it to themselves and not bring it into the public sphere? It wouldn't exist. And I'm not here to be like, hey, I'm not an anti-culture guy. I believe we're called to jump into and renew culture not to destroy it as Christians. That's a whole different sermon series. But the, the ironic thing about the Humanist Manifesto, after it was written and signed by dozens of the leading intellectuals and, and, and government officials around Western civilization at the time, since then we've had a world war, a few different economic 
crises, a few different environmental crises, like over 100 humanitarian crises, all caused by the same humans that they claim to be able to figure out truth in life on themselves. And so that sounds like so big and, and broad, and, and that's just something to think through Christmas time. Is this, is this coming from a biblical mindset, or is this coming from a, a worldly philosophy? So it's one thing to think about breaking it out against God's rule at a large scale, but I want to ask, and I want to zoom in and ask, what about me? What about us as individuals that make up God's kingdom? Is there any part of your life or of my life where we're trying to break away from God's authority? In verse 3, the word, the word in the Hebrew that's used uh, for chains and shackles, it's the same word that would have been used to, to a yoke being put on an ox or a bull for, for plowing or pulling a cart to get work done. See, see God ordains government to, to, get, to make his will happen in the world. So when we as humans, whether we're in a position of power and authority within a human system or not, we need to check our own hearts and our behaviors because we often find ourselves trying to break away from what God has given us to bless us, his word and his will, because we want to keep control over something. And we get really good at it. Do you remember what Jesus said we would have to do if we wanted to be his disciples and follow him? It wasn't like know things, and it wasn't like memorize stuff, and it wasn't attend a certain amount or serve a certain amount or give a certain amount, even though all of those are important. But do you know what Jesus said we had to do to be his disciple? Die to ourselves. If anyone wants to, wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's to obey him. See, because if Jesus had named any other thing, we would have gotten good at it. My type A people are self-competitive people. Anybody ever set a goal and you would like almost die instead of not reach that goal? Anybody? Any, okay, yeah, thank you for your honesty. I'm that way. I'm that way. This past year, I almost uh, killed myself because I signed up for a marathon and then I did not train for a marathon. <laughs> That's problematic for humans like me, okay, who are not superhuman. And when you're like, at mile 13 and you have to turn around and go back and you, and you have not trained, okay, there are two ways to do things. There are give up or there are get seriously injured and have to go to physical therapy for six months. I chose number two, okay, <laughs> because I'm unrealistic. We talked about this earlier. See, because if, if, God, if Jesus had turned around and said to the disciples, hey, if anyone wants to follow me and be my disciple, they need to memorize the first five books of the Bible. People have been doing that for hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene. I'm like, no problem. Like if Jesus had said, if you want to be my disciple, you just need to, to show up to you know, worship X amount of days a week, you need to pray X amount of hours, and you need to memorize this amount of scripture, and you need to give away this amount of money. We would have said, great, no problem. We would have done it. Because we're good at, at reaching goals. We're bad at denying ourselves. Right? Thanksgiving just made that so clear for me. I should not have eaten as much as I did. Right? But I did not deny myself. <laughs> and that's a silly example, but the reality is that Jesus said, take up, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. It's not doing what verse, what verse 3 says, where you break off the chains, you throw off the shackles that God has given to obey him. John wrote that if anyone says they love Jesus, but they don't obey him, he says that they are a liar and the, and the truth of God is not in them. So Advent's a chance for us to ask the question, what in my life, what area in my life, what thing in my life am I actively casting off the restraints that God has given me as a gift to bless me? John continues to write that anything that pulls us away from God, he says, are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What's that thing keeping your attention that's pulling your eyes away from God and putting it on the things that you should not be looking at, especially not so intently? Maybe it's someone that's not your spouse. Maybe it's your bank account. Where does your salvation and hope come from? That if you think, if I lost that or I did not have that, I could not be happy and I would lose my hope. Because in a way, that's breaking off the chains that God has given us. Following Jesus. Students, middle school, high school students, is there anywhere in your life, anything in your life your parents are trying to guide you in and you won't listen to them or obey them? See, we cannot serve. Here's why this is important. You say, man, I don't see the, I don't see the, the, the thing between denying ourselves and, and God changed because that sounds like heavy language. The reality is we cannot serve God and anything else at the same time. We can't do it. Jesus said this clearly in his teaching. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's true not just for money, but that's true for a lot of things. It's how we get to the point where we're actively trying to cast off the authority of God in our lives. And it's the raging world that we're a part of. So what does God have to say to us humans who are conspiring and plotting and raging against him how to get away from his rule in our reign? Well, let's look at the rebuttal from God. There are two things that God does in his rebuttal. The first thing he does is he laughs. On a scale from one to ten, how worried do you think God is of another human? Zero, right? Right? Like what good is actually rebelling against God? Like what chance do you think you have in a cosmic battle against God Almighty? Right? Like our daughter, my daughters are at this age where they love to wrestle. And, and like I'm not a like necessarily like an intimidating human specimen, but what chance do my th does my three-year-old have in beating me in a wrestling match? Zero, right? you know? Like how many points do you think I could score against LeBron James in one-on-one? -on -one? Zero, I'm telling you right now. I played soccer my whole life, zero, right? See, God does not tolerate competition. And it's because the word anger that's used when it talks about the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. That word anger is the same word used to describe when God becomes angry because he's jealous that the people that he loves and the people that he sacrificed for have turned to love other things and not him. See, the anger there is not anger because God's like this cosmic policeman that's just waiting for you to make up 
like make a mistake and come down at you. He's a God of love who is your heavenly father and he's looking at you angry because he's saying, I'm, like, why would you go anywhere else? Why would you try to fight me? Why would you come against me when you can walk with me? That's why evil authorities fall and empires crumble because God won't put up with people trying to be him. He wants his people to be with him. He's okay with people knowing him and wanting to be like him, but he won't put up with competition. So the first thing he does is he laughs because he says, hey, good luck. People have been trying to do this since the Garden of Eden, and they've always lost, but I keep coming after you with faithful love and goodness and kindness, and I keep making a way for you to be with me. The second thing that he does in his rebuttal is that he reminds us that he sent Jesus. Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. All right, so that phrase kind of takes us back to the promise that God made to David in in 1 Chronicles and and 2 Samuel where he established uh, David, the man after his own heart, and he said that on on your throne, David, uh, from your seed, from your lineage, I'm going to bring a descendant that would sit on the throne forever and all people would become subject to him. We know that that's Jesus, and it's why we have Christmas. It's, It's where we remember the hope in the midst of hurt in the midst of the raging and the plotting to pull us away from a life with God, we remember that Jesus came, that God sent his son to establish a kingdom of peace and of love and of enough and not too little and where he comes and he makes all wrong things right. John starts his gospel with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, talking about Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, in the midst of a world that we know, we also know that Jesus has come, that he has brought light and life and hope and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus being on the throne is good news. It's good news for us who feel subject to evil and darkness in the world, and it's good news for us who realize the places and areas of our life where we tried to take the throne of God and lead on our own terms. See, the hope that we have is that the light of all mankind came and defeated darkness. In the Colossians series, we've read that a few times where Paul said that Jesus came and he triumphed over the powers and principalities of darkness and nailed them to the cross to their own shame. And so let's look at the reign of the sun. What, is it, what does it look like for Jesus to be on the throne? Verses 7 through 9. So here we kind of get a third voice in the psalm. We get the, the psalm of God's chosen one, his son, where it says, He said to me, you are my son, and today I become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So in these verses, we get the words, and we start hearing the words like when we hear, you are my son, today I've become your father. You know, maybe, maybe you think back to the baptism of Jesus where he comes out of the water, and God says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Or, or when Jesus, right before his betrayal and crucifixion, he's on the mountain praying with some of his disciples, and they get to see his true glory, and God says out loud, this is my son whom I love, 
listen to him, testifying to who Jesus is and, and the authority of Jesus. And, and so Jesus, his reign, we learned that it's, it's a few things. We learned that it's all-encompassing in its scope. Verse 8 says, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. See, God owns everything, and he hands it over to Jesus. John 3, 35 says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. See, kingdoms on earth, they have a boundary. Right, America, we know how America works. We've got the, the Atlantic on one side, the Pacific on the other. We've got Canada above us, Mexico below us. We, ha- we have borders. We have to have passports to go to other countries, to, to go and, and border stop based on, you know, whatever, other countries or, or water or whatever, but, but not Jesus, right? Jesus is picking up the same kingdom that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 139 where it says, where can I go and escape from your presence? If I go here, you're already there. If I go here, you're already there. If I go anywhere, you're already there. You see me and you know me. See, Jesus, when we're talking about where can Jesus reign, where does Jesus reign, it's everywhere. That's the plan. But the sun's reign, not only is it all-encompassing, it's all-powerful. Verse 9 is loaded with powerful word pictures that can grate against the baby picture of Jesus at Christmas, right? Like, like verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. Who thinks of that in the nativity scene? Right? He says, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Once again, language that sounds really oppressive and really like authoritative. They are authoritative, but they're not oppressive. Because if we realize that Jesus, his rule, the way of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the reign of Jesus is actually better than what we could come up with on our own terms, that should be words of comfort for us. Because the scepter, the rule, is not to hurt those he loves, it's to hurt those who hurt those that he loves. But the truth is, for us to have real hope in the reign of Jesus means that we have to accept the reality of him as a righteous judge. There's a word that, there's a phrase that pops up a few times throughout the Bible. And it's a phrase that we see happen all the time with people who claim the name of God, but then live a life against his will and his way, where it says God will not be mocked. And there's another phrase that goes along with that in Galatians, but a little separate from it in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament, where it says, be sure your sin will find you out. There's another phrase that says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and he has the power to save and to destroy. Jesus himself said whenever the disciples came up and said, hey, Jesus, you gave us your authority and like we were casting out demons and we were healing people and we were doing all this, but then some people came out and they wanted to attack us and Jesus said, hey, don't fear those who can only destroy the body, but fear the one who can judge both the body and the soul in hell. See, Jesus is the righteous, all-powerful, all-encompassing judge gives us hope because it's true and that's the only way that he could come back to earth one day and make all wrong things right, to totally renew everything. Because if we had no judge to stand up, if there were no reckoning, then what, then what would what we do on earth matter? See, those verses about Jesus and, and his rule and his reign, is, they're actually Christmas verses. 
It sounds odd because Christmas, we like to remove so far from the idea of sin and the reality of, of evil in the world and even in our own hearts. But Jesus coming, meaning there's going to be a reckoning. And that's good news for us who know him. Like no one would ever be off the hook if God became flesh, took what we are as sinful humans and proved himself to be true and powerful over sin. He died on the cross, satisfying the anger that God had for us making a mess out of his good world and destroyed the works of the devil. See, Jesus coming as the righteous judge is good news. Like the song we sing at Christmas, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and our soul felt its worth. The righteous king has given us his righteousness. We've met the judge and he's full of mercy, but he won't let sin go unpunished. And if that feels heavy on you personally, I would just remind you that he didn't let sin go unpunished because Jesus himself bore our sins on the cross and it's by his stripes that we're healed. See, Jesus by his, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, he earned the right for God to hand all things over to him. His reign is all-encompassing and all-powerful. And so how do we respond? Well, the respond is we live into the hope that he gave us. Look at verses, it kind of gives us verses 10 through 12, just kind of natural response for us today as we go out of the sermon here. It says, be, therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And then there's three phrases that I want to kind of focus on as we close. The first one is the beginning of verse 11 where it says, serve the Lord with fear. So as we go into this Advent season, here in the sermon today, preparing for the hope and the reality that Jesus has come to pay for our sins, has rose from the grave conquering death, and is, a, is reigning over everything, is there anything that you felt God may be calling you to during this message? Is there anything that he's asking you to lean into in his rule in your life? Is there anything that you're withholding from him? Is there something that, that God is asking you to do this Christmas season? Maybe you heard the, about sponsoring and providing Christmas for a foster kid. And maybe, maybe the, in the back of your mind you thought, man, what if we just went ahead and did it this year and we spent half the amount of money we spent on ourselves and we gave the other half away? Maybe this is the year to do that. What's that thing that popped in your mind when you heard you cannot serve anything else and God at the same time? Because it says to serve the Lord with fear. The second thing it says is, is to celebrate his rule with trembling. So we celebrate his rule. Take some time this, this Advent season to meditate on the goodness of God and his reign. Maybe you just need a month to set aside and, and remember, remind yourself, look through scripture and find promises. Write a timeline from the day you met Jesus until today and all the good ways that God has proven himself good in your life. Write that out. And take time to remind yourself that Jesus reigning and ruling is a good thing. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not an option, so why put it off? 
Worshiping Jesus, remembering God's goodness, his faithful love and his covenant promises is a really good practice to do, meditating on God's goodness. Christmas is an opportunity to see what's keeping you from celebrating him. Because when we pray, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus responded on earth, my, my kingdom is at hand. And then the third way, it says, kiss the son. Kiss the son and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Christmas is an opportunity to grow in intimacy, to set aside a time to pray, to be with him. Advent is a call to communion with him. See, oftentimes we hear the words, you know, prepare your hearts or, or you know, we want Advent to, to change our mindset and, and that's good. Those are good things, right? Like Advent is about believing that, that Jesus, the Son of God, is not only available for us to know, to talk to, to hear from, and he wants to commune with us, and, and God made us for that. So Christmas, it's not just to change our consumerist mindset, even though that's a good thing. It's not just about getting through the grief that pops up every holiday. It's a good thing to do that. It's not just to create a loving, fun, celebratory environment for your family and your home, that's a good thing to do. Those are all good things. But Advent is a call to intimacy that Jesus came to be with us, that God with us. Or maybe this year Advent's the year where you, where you give your life to Jesus, where you hear that truth, the good news that Jesus died for your sins so you no longer have to be bound by sin and shame and guilt that he rose from the grave conquering death, that ultimate enemy that, that no matter how good we get at science, no matter how good we get at medical advances, we can't conquer death, but Jesus did. And the truth and the reality, the hope that one day he is gonna come back and make all wrong things right. So while we live in that tension now of his kingdom at hand, but not yet fully, totally fulfilled, he's gonna come back one day and make it happen. You hear that good news, and maybe today's the day where you just say, Jesus, I believe that and I wanna follow you. I wanna deny myself and follow you daily. So what's that call of Advent God's given you today? What's that thing? I'd invite you to write it down, to, to, to serve the Lord, to celebrate his rule, to kiss his son and take refuge in him. W will you take this Advent season to embrace God's chosen one who came for us to give us hope? So what we're gonna do as we close today, we're gonna do our, the prayer of confession that we've been doing because the Bible teaches us that if any of us have sinned, that sin's what separated us from God, but if any of us sin, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if there was a sin, if there was a thing that you're holding on to, this is a great way to confess it. So let's all stand together. We're gonna read this prayer together, pray it together, and then... We'll say amen and we'll close in worship today. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen.